great worship songs this morning, and I hope that your heart was stirred like mine, some of the new songs and some of the old. I want to say this every time I'm at a church that sings that song, and so I've probably said it here, but I think maybe the greatest line ever put in a hymn you just sang, my sin, not, the part, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. That sums up why we sing. If he had just nailed 99% of my sin to the cross, I would spend eternity in hell. He took all of it, my sin not in part but the whole. So I hope you worship. Guys, thank you for leading us. If you happen to be back in Weatherford from being gone for the summer, we have spent part of the summer on Sunday mornings going through a sermon series that I have entitled, What Does Faithfulness in a Church Look Like? And we've just been looking at different snapshots in different parts of the Bible what does it look like when a church is faithful? Because there are churches that are not faithful. And there are churches that are very faithful. And there are probably churches all along that sliding scale. And I know that ultimately I'm not the judge of what constitutes a faithful church and what is not a faithful church. I know that God is. And so we have gone to Scripture to try to find those snapshots of what faithfulness looks like for a church because, church, it matters. It really does matter. Faithfulness actually is one of those fruits of the Spirit. In Galatians, Paul said, this is what a life looks like that's being dominated by God's Spirit. It's what a church looks like that's being dominated by God's Spirit. And it's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Faithfulness is one of those marks that God's leading our lives and so just, if you brought your Bibles, I want you to turn to the book of James with me. We're going to try to find another snapshot of what faithfulness looks like in a church. There's a lot of different ways you could compare faithful churches and unfaithful churches. One of the ways you might could do that is by what, what a church, church's vision is. And by vision, I don't mean like their long-term strategy vision. By vision, I mean just how do they see things? How do they see things? separates faithful churches from unfaithful churches. So just by way of reminder, I'll give you a few things we've already learned that faithful churches see differently than unfaithful churches. In our series, we've learned that faithful churches see ownership differently. All the way back in Matthew 16, the very first time the word church is used in the Bible, Jesus says, upon this rock, I will build my church. Faithful churches get the ownership right. It is my church, God says. The church doesn't belong to the people. It doesn't belong to the pastor. It doesn't belong to the longest-serving member. Jesus says it's my church, and faithful churches get the ownership right. Faithful churches also see God's word differently than unfaithful churches. We learned in Acts chapter 2 that the early church in Jerusalem, they were devoted. It's a very strong word. They were devoted to the apostles' teachings those teachings God inspired them to write in the New Testament. In the early church, the faithful ones saw God's word very differently. If I could just pay a compliment here. Uh, years in ministry, God has let me serve him. I have known some men, some men in leadership in churches that were totally devoted to God's word. They saw God's word differently. But to be honest... I don't know that I've ever known a team 
of ministers. The leadership team of a church, corporately, together, that has any higher view of God's word than the men leading this church. Skyler and Larry and Brian, as they serve this church, they have such a high view. I really believe those three men would say, if God's word says it, we do it, and we'll leave the consequences to God. I've known individuals like that, but to have a whole team like that is a gift to this church. We learned also that faithful churches see truth differently. Guys, we're living in a world that is increasingly saying there is no absolute truth. And we learned in 1 Timothy 3 that the church, Paul says, is the, the foundation and the pillar of the truth. What an interesting way to describe the church. We are in this community the pillar of the truth. We hold up the truth. Churches should be the one place in a community where truth is put on display. Every week, week in and week out, we put truth on display. And faithful churches see ownership differently. They see God's word differently. They see truth differently. We also learned a few weeks ago that faithful churches see spiritual gifts differently. Everybody in God's family is a gifted person. There are no giftless Christians. And in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul does this analogy of the body of Christ, and some are hands, and some are feet, and some are eyes, and some are ears. Everybody has a contribution to make. If you're a believer, and you're a part of this fellowship, you have a spiritual gift that you're to give away. Your spiritual gift was not given to you for you. You're to bless me with your gift. You're to bless the rest of this family with your gift. However God's gifted me, you better get 100% of it. I ought to be building up the body of Christ with however he's gifted me. Unfaithful churches don't view gifted people that way. We learned last week that faithful churches see danger differently. In Acts chapter 20, Paul gathered the pastors from Ephesus in Miletus, and he said, listen, I'm going to tell you something. And the word he used was wolves. He said, fierce wolves are coming to your church. And for three years, I've stood as a soldier guarding the church in Ephesus, and now I'm leaving. And you men better get yourselves between the sheep and the wolves. You're the leaders of the church. And faithful churches realize that there are real threats to churches. There are things that, that the wolves would love for you to believe that aren't scriptural. So how we see things changes as we become a faithful church. But in James chapter 2, we find out that faithful churches also view people differently. We also just view people differently. I'm going to start reading in just a minute, but I want to remind you of something that I know that you know is true. We're living in a world where almost everyone in this sinful, fallen world judges people based on externals. We live in a world that judges you based on how old you look or how young you look. They judge you based on the color of your skin or your race. We live in a world that judges people on how much education they have or don't have. They judge people on what you drive or what you wear or where you live or how much money you make. They judge you on how beautiful or handsome you are. And it's all shallow and it's all external and the whole world judges people like that. In our world, sometimes you are in or out based on externals. 
you are valued or you're not valued based on externals. Distinctions are made and favoritism is shown based on those things. And we learn it at a very early age. First graders and second graders are already judging people based on externals. And James is writing to a group and he's reminding the church this. Faithful churches are a family where we are counter-cultural. We're surrounded by a world that judges people like that and then there's this little pocket of people who go against the culture and say we do not judge people based on those shallow externals. In our family, we're going to reject the world's way of judging people and go with God's values. In here, that's what's going to be lived out. And in James chapter 2, he's having to deal with that. Sometimes the world's values do slip into the church. And James has to address that. So James chapter 2, verse 1. He says, my brothers, so he's writing to Christians, show no favoritism or no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man who's dressed in shabby clothes also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothes, and you say to him, sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, stand over there or sit here at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones, the ones who oppose you, and the ones who are dragging you into court, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show this favoritism or this partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. In, in verse 1, James does something very interesting. He says, some of you are holding on to your faith, and at the same time, you're wanting to hold on to favoritism. You're wanting to hang on to both of those ropes at the same time. And he's saying that is very inconsistent in a faithful church. That is inconsistent for God's people. He uses an interesting phrase. I, I, I don't want to bore you with the original language, but I, this is fascinating to me. The word that we translate favoritism or partiality, it's a word in the original Greek that literally means to receive the face of someone. You receive the face of someone. What James is condemning them for is this. He's saying when you guys gather as a church, sometimes you receive or reject someone based on their face. You receive or reject someone based on their appearance. You're in the business of treating people differently based on externals. And James says, we're not going to tolerate that. 
I have to address that in my letter to this church because it's not the sign of a faithful church. They're making distinctions based on how rich someone is. Or at least that's the way he illustrates it. He actually says in verse 1, you, you guys are doing acts of favoritism. It's plural. Guys, this, this favoritism can be based on a lot of different things. He picks as an example rich versus poor. But there are lots of other ways we show favoritism. And if you're familiar with the New Testament, you, you may be able to read through, I, I, I don't know how many times I've read through the book of James. It's one of my most favorite in the New Testament. And you can read through this and you've, you've become familiar with it. But imagine what it would be like if we practiced this kind of favoritism this morning when we came to church. Uh, there, there's some wonderful people every Sunday that before Sunday school provide snacks. This morning there were breakfast casseroles and biscuits and donut holes. Imagine if you had walked in and you were going to grab some of those and, and to the college students we said, hey, listen, these really aren't for you. I mean, really. We have some other snacks for you. But the homemade good stuff? No. And you go to reach for one, I'm like, no, don't make me break your arm. <laughs> These are not for you. We have snacks for you, and we have snacks for the non-students. You'd be like, what, what on earth? What if we had parking out there marked? Listen, we have men parking, and way out, we have women parking. And we're going to make this distinction, and we're going to treat people differently at church based on externals. I, I've read this enough that really studying it this week, I had to slow down and be, what would, what would it have been like to have gone to a church where if you were a visitor and walked in and didn't know where to sit, they sized you up based on externals and said, we have a good seat for you. You, however, there might be a spot at my feet. And James is writing this assuming that that kind of stuff is happening if you have shabby clothes, we'll treat you one way. If you're wealthy, we'll treat you another. James was writing to a church that had begun to act like the culture around them. It had slipped in. And he says in verse 1, listen, the Lord of the church, the owner, he actually uses a, a phrase that's rare in the New Testament. He says, the Lord of glory, the glorious one, doesn't like you doing this. I, I, I think, I don't know, I suspect James may have used that, the Lord of glory, to kind of remind them that when we gather to worship, we're so caught up with the glory of the Lord that the glory of social classes really doesn't impress us much. We're glad you're here, but we're not impressed with you. We're impressed with him. I hope you're glad I'm here, but that you're not impressed with me. You're impressed with him, the glorious one, verse 1, the Lord of glory. So, uh, to, to, to make distinctions and divide people in church based on anything external, age, social class, wealth, race, what you wear, what you drive, totally unacceptable. Now, God so convicted me about this early in life that even through years in student ministry, I so did not want to treat anybody differently based on externals. I remember sitting with a group of sponsors one time and sharing my heart with them and saying, listen, when we get to take students to camp or on retreats or on ski trips, 
if someone were to watch from the outside, someone who knew nobody, if they just were to watch us, I would want them to have absolutely no idea who the members of our church are and who the visitors are based on how we treat these kids this week. No idea. I, I would want them to have absolutely no idea who the students are that come from more well-to-do families and those who come from families with less means because they all get the same from us. I, I remember telling them, I, I don't even want them to be able to pick out which kids are actually mine versus the ones that aren't mine because we treat them all the same. But do you realize how difficult that is in our world? Because we grew up learning at an early age that you treat people differently based on certain things. Let me, let me step out of James chapter 2 just for a second, and then we'll get back to it and finish. I want to show you the big picture. You don't have to turn to these. I'm just going to read them to you. The ultimate reason, listen, the ultimate reason we don't behave like that at church, that faithful churches don't behave like that, is because God's not like that. God does not receive or reject someone based on their face. So if I could step out of James 2 and just give you the big picture, just listen to these passages. In Romans 2, Paul says, There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. But there will be glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For God shows no favoritism. It's the exact same word used in James chapter 2. God doesn't receive the face of a man. Doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a non-Jew, God shows no favoritism. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul's giving instructions to people back in the first century where slaves existed in the Roman Empire, and he's writing to the masters. And listen to what he says. Masters, treat them the same way. Stop your threatening, knowing that the one who is both their master and your master is in heaven, and that with him there is no favoritism. Exact same word as in James chapter 2. doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, no favoritism. It doesn't matter if you're a master or a slave. With God, there's no favoritism. He doesn't receive or reject based on externals. I'll give you one from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 10. For your Lord is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great and the mighty and the awesome God who shows no favoritism and accepts no bride. Because the ultimate reason that faithful churches see people differently is because we want to see people the way God sees people, not the way the world does. And, and occasionally when you run into somebody who, who hasn't bought into the way the world judges people, it's so place. The Christian faith is built on the truth that God judges people not on external appearance. He doesn't judge people on wealth or race or social class or what you wear. He judges people on the condition of their heart. And faithful churches desperately want to be like the Lord. When we show favoritism and judge people based on external appearance, we are being un- godly. We are being ungodlike. I, I don't know if you guys have been watching the Olympics any. Wendy and I have, have watched some of it, and uh, I, I, could never, I could never be a judge in the Olympics. I like the events in the Olympics, like the volleyball, where if your team scores 25 and mine scores 21, we lost. There's no there's nothing subjective. It's just, if you run faster than me, but some of the events, you have to have judges lined up, and they score it. 
I could, I could never, I could never do that, because Wendy and I were watching the gymnastics the other night and the diving. I mean, if you can walk out to the edge of that platform that's three stories off the water and do a handstand, and then kick your feet, and I mean, I, the minute they did the handstand, I'd be like ten. I'd turn my card in. I'd be like, <laughs> I, I'd give all of them tens. The, the, the gymnasts, I mean, if you can get up on those rings and hang onto those rings and put your body in those positions and then they do that dismount and like 18 flips and a twist and I'll be like, okay, if he didn't kill himself, 10. <laughs> 10, 10, is he alive? 10. I mean, I just, it would be all 10s. I, could I couldn't do it. But what if they ask you to judge? Um, I'm trying to decide who to pick on here and I, I'm, I'm just going to go with Jerry. What if they asked Jerry to judge the gymnastics in the Olympics? And, and what if Jerry had had a bad year? I mean, a bad week, a bad day, and he shows up at the Olympics, and he's, they give him the scorecards, and when, when he watches all the Olympics, he turns them all in, and, and when they're tabulating them, they call him over, and they're like, Jerry, you, you added stuff to the bottom of the scorecard with personal notes. And he's like, yeah, I mean, I gave it my all. And he's like, well, why, why, why did you dock this girl? And Jerry's like, well, when she came out, I, I didn't really like what she'd done with her hair. I mean, she did like this ponytail thing, and I thought she'd look better, and so I docked her three points because I didn't like her hair. And they're like, who are you to talk about hair? I mean. <laughs> and what if he docked a girl because when she walked out, they're like, well, now why did she lose points? And he's like, well, I, I noticed she had on fingernail polish, and I kind of felt like the color clashed with her outfit. And you can't do that. You can't wear those colors after Easter. So I docked her. And I'm like, well, what about this guy? And he said, well, that guy, the country he's from, I've loved their flag forever. I mean, they have the greatest looking flag. So I gave him four bonus points just because of his flag. You know what they would tell him? They'd say, listen, you do not have the right to make up your own scorecard. And what James is saying in James chapter 2 is this. Listen, God forbid that as a church you make up your own scorecard on how you judge people. Who on earth do we think we are for me to judge you based on externals? Can you imagine if you'd been in this first century church and they were signing good seats and bad seats? The way James writes that is the assumption is you are doing this. How can you do that? I think God would write to a lot of churches today and just say, listen, you, you can't make up your own scorecard, guys. Now, I want to be clear. Faithful churches do make judgment calls, okay? Faithful churches do have to make evaluations. But it's not based on externals. It's based on heart issues. Things like faithfulness and love for God and character and holiness and Christ-likeness and joy and gentleness and self-control. Those things that are internal signs, that they do show up externally. They do rise to the surface in our lives. But they're not the things that James chapter 2 is talking about. So let me, let me end by doing this. Let me give you three reasons from this passage why it's wrong to do this. And these won't take us long. The overarching big umbrella reason is because it's not like God. God doesn't show favoritism. We want to be like him. 
But there are three specific reasons James gets at in this passage. So let me just mention them and we'll close. Look at verse 5. He says, listen, my beloved brothers. Now, do you hear the heart of a pastor in that? He's fixing to have to lower the boom on them. And there are times pastors have to step up and say, We're, we can't do that here. I'm not going to give an inch on this one. There are times dads have to do that. There are times moms have to do that. But you still have to hear the heart of the parent in it. You still have to hear the heart of the pastor in it. And he's saying in verse 5, please listen to me, my beloved brothers. Your family to me. I care about you. I can't back off of where the standard is here, but it's not just rules. It's the standard with love. So he says, listen in verse 5, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? The first reason James gives for why we don't do this is because showing favoritism like this contradicts God's values. It contradicts God's values. He says in verse 5 that God chose the poor of the world to bless with salvation. And he says, you guys are choosing the poor to dishonor. That doesn't line up with God's values. God chose the poor of the world to bless with salvation. How dare you when they show up at church, you choose them, you single them out to dishonor. Now, I want you to listen to me because I, I don't want you to mishear what I'm going to say. There are passages in the Bible that teach God's side of the equation in salvation. When a person comes to faith in Christ, there are passages in the Bible that teach God's side of that equation. And they're all through the Bible. And those passages use words like God chose, God predestined, and God elected. Faithful churches do not back off of those passages. There are also passages in the Bible that teach man's side of the equation when it comes to salvation. And those verses teach us things about man's responsibility to repent and man's responsibility to come to faith and man's responsibility to accept the free gift of salvation God offers. Both of those sides of the equation are taught in the Bible. And there are times, even on my best days, that I can't make them mesh up perfectly. But I do not deny either side because we're devoted to God's Word. But I just want to be clear on this passage James's argument is not you should honor the poor people because they chose God. His argument is you should honor the poor people because God chose them. This is one of the passages that's highlighting God's side of the equation. God looked down on them and chose them to be rich in faith. He chose them to inherit the kingdom. That's a powerful argument. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul gives his version of this. And he asked in 1 Corinthians 1 this question, Why among God's family are there not many of noble birth? Why are there not many wise? Why are there not many influential? Why are the movers and shakers in the world not filling the churches? Because by and large, if you look at church history, the faithfulest of the faithful, the true believers in Christ throughout 2,000 years of church history, most of them have not been the intellectual elite, the multi-billionaires, the kings, the noble birth, the wise. Most of them have been common people. 1 Corinthians 1 says most of them have been the weak and the things that aren't and those of non-noble birth. And in 1 Corinthians 1, 
Paul uses the verb chose three times, and God's the subject all three times. He says, God chose the weak, God chose the poor, God chose the things that are not, so that there will be no boasting. No, nobody gets to Christ and brags, look what I did. We get to Christ and can sing those worship songs, and we're just amazed at what he did for us. I take no credit in my salvation. And the argument James is making in chapter 2 is, if you look at those that, that the world views as less fortunate and you dishonor them, you're contradicting God's values because he looked at them and said, those are the ones I want to bless with rich faith and an inheritance for eternity. Guys, what we're tempted to do is get confused about what real wealth is. And we buy into the world's definition of real wealth, and we say if somebody's wealthy with earthly possessions, they're the wealthy. And James is saying there are people who are wealthy in faith, and they're the real wealthy. Listen, if, if God had given me daughters and he knew better, I, I would teach my daughters, hold out and marry for wealth. with this explanation. Make sure he's rich in faith. You can work out the rest of the details. But hold out for somebody who's rich in faith. And James is saying some of these people are rich in faith and they have this incredible inheritance coming from God for all eternity and you're treating them like they're not important. Cut it out. Let me give you a second reason. He gets pretty practical on this second reason. If the first reason is theological, the second reason is practical. Verse 6, you guys dishonor the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppose you? Are they not the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the honorable name by which you were called? He says, listen, showing this kind of favoritism doesn't work to secure the blessings of the rich people. He seems to be saying, if you're giving preferential treatment to the rich people who may show up at church, if you're doing that in hopes that you'll earn their favor, it's not working. They're the very ones who are dragging you into court. They're the very ones who are exploiting you and opposing you. And they're the very ones who are blaspheming the noble name by which you were called. If you think you're doing this just to make your life easier, so the, the world shakers, the influential, the movers... If you're trying to give them preferential treatment at church because you know Christianity is this minority in this big lost world and you're hoping that they'll return the favor, it's not working. So stop it. If that's your motive for doing it, they're the very ones exploiting you, which is an economic term, taking advantage of you economically. They're the ones dragging you into court with legal threats, and they're the ones, worst of all, that are blaspheming the noble name of Christ. Why are you showing them preferential treatment and dishonoring the ones that Christ honored. Do you guys realize that faithful churches, our whole value system looks upside down to the world. Everything we do and why we do it, Christ has so changed us at the core that it looks crazy to the world. And, and I want to make this clear. It's not that everybody that's ever come to Christ was poor. There were wealthy people in the New Testament. Joseph of Arimathea was wealthy enough that when Christ died, he had a private tomb he, could put, he thought he was putting Christ in there forever. He only needed to rent it for three days. But he was offering it to him forever. Barnabas was wealthy enough. He had land, extra land, that he could sell and give it to meet needs of the church. It's not that there weren't any people of means. 
But by and large, in throughout church history, it has been the common folks. And he's saying, you're dishonoring them, which contradicts God's values. And if you think you're going to get some kind of kickback from treating with preferential treatment the wealthy who show up at church, that doesn't work. I remember several years ago, several years ago, this young lady in high school that uh, was visiting with me and uh, just a, a beautiful girl. I mean, just absolutely beautiful heart. And in a moment of absolute honesty, she said, she said, Doug, I, I am tired of the popular kids at school, the influential ones, making fun of me because of my morals, because I won't do the things they do. And, and it felt to her like, she didn't use this word, but it's, it's the lost world blaspheming what's important to you. They may blaspheme the fact that you come and worship on a Sunday and they think it's crazy. They may blaspheme your morals. They may blaspheme your standards. And here was this girl saying, it's, it's, it's every week. They just, they make fun of how I'm choosing to live and date and not do and not do. And I remember telling her, listen, the very lost world that will mock you for your high morals, if you compromise and become like them, they'll make fun of you for your low morals. That's what they do. They don't like you now because of your convictions. If you compromise to become like them, they'll find another reason to make fun of you. If you sacrifice God's values to get a lost world to like you, you have paid infinitely too high a price. And James is saying, listen, you, you're, you're, value, you're violating God's standards at church, and if the reason is, is in hopes that they'll treat you better, it's not working. They're still dragging you to court and oppressing you and blaspheming the name of Christ. Well, the last one, and I, I'll, just, I'll just summarize this one out of time. He says this kind of favoritism also violates the law of love. It contradicts God's values. It doesn't work to secure the blessings of the rich, and it violates the law of love. Look at verse 8. He says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show this kind of favoritism, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. He reaches all the way back into the Old Testament and, call, and pulls out what he calls the royal law. It's the king's law. It's royalty's law. And there's only one king in the Bible. The Old Testament command that you should love your neighbor is yourself. And he says, if you behave like this at church, you're violating the king's law. And it's not just a mistake, it's sin. You're committing sin. When Jesus was asked what's the greatest commandments, he said the first one is love the Lord your God and the second is love your neighbor as yourself. To make distinctions based on external appearance at church is not a faithful church. It's a church that's choosing not to make a mistake but to actually sin. Faithful churches see people differently. And how we treat them week in and week out is very different than what they experience in the world. I was trying to think, is there any acceptable favoritism in the church? When James comes down so hard on it in chapter 2 and says, you can't do this, guys, 
Is there any place in the Bible that says it's acceptable to put people into two classes when they come to church? And I actually think I found one. But you're not going to like it. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, Paul writes this, Nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others acceptable favoritism at church is if when we get together I put us in two classes and all of you are in first class and I'm not. That's acceptable favoritism in the New Testament. All of you get first class and I get coach. That's okay. I can divide us into two groups. You can divide everybody in this room into two groups. You put everybody else as more significant than you and out of humility you consider yourself less significant than them but we don't divide on any other terms. Listen, I want to be a part for the rest of my life, wherever God has me, in a faithful church. One of the places faithfulness shows up is in how we see people. And I will just say, I have, I have not seen any of James chapter 2 at Trinity Baptist Church, ever. So this, this is a sermon just because I want to be faithful to all of the snapshots of a faithful church in the New Testament but it's not a corrective measure. It's not a sermon that's saying we need to change this because I don't see this here. And I pray that always continues. If you happen to be here this morning and you realize I'm at church, but I'm not in church. I'm not in Christ. I've never experienced his love and his forgiveness. I don't know what it is to be able to sing my sin not in part, but the whole was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. You can't sing that because you don't personally know Christ. You have not personally experienced the free gift of salvation and what it means to be adopted and loved and forgiven. And even, even on a message out of James chapter 2, God has been tugging at your heart saying, you know, why don't you quit playing church and come to Christ? Why don't you get saved? Why don't you really let me run your life? This morning might be the morning that God would, would move you and invite you and you would say yes to that. And when we sing our last song in just a second, Skyler and I will be standing down here. You come catch one of us and just say, I'd like to talk to somebody about what it means to really follow Christ. If you're here and you'd like to join Trinity Baptist Church, Sundays is always an opportunity where someone could come. And, and th these guys are good about talking to you first to make sure you really understand what church membership means and what it means to follow Christ. But if you'd like to join and come down and talk to somebody about joining, we'd love that. But I want to ask you to pray as we sing that God would make this a church where we view people the way he views them. Would you stand and I'll close this in prayer. God, as we get ready to sing our last song and go out of here, we're going to go back into a world that judges everybody externally. And I just pray you'd refresh our hearts and remind these people that they're valuable not because the world says they're valuable. They're valuable because you declared us to be valuable. You were willing to sacrifice your son. That's how much you think of these people. They were worth the death of your only son. I pray we find our worth in you. We find our value in the right things, not in all these externals that the world wrongly values. And make us a faithful church. In Christ's name, amen.